Good singing. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 111. I enjoy singing, but I think the older I get, the less I probably should do so that I can keep preaching. So, sadly, I'm afraid my days in choir are numbered. You don't care, but thought I'd share that with you. Makes for a long Sunday. It is good to have with us the Doolittles. I'm sure they don't want me to say anything, but missionaries to Brazil, it's good to have you here with us. They got stuck on the front row in church this morning. Other than preaching, brother, when was the last time you had to sit on the front row in a Baptist church? It's been a long time. Uh, don't stick around here. They'll put you up here every week. But anyway, it's good to have them here with us as well. Make sure you make them feel welcome today. Psalm 111 tonight. There are no notes. There are no overheads. It's church as it used to be, just from the Word of God. We're going to look at the concept or the idea biblically of redemption and what it means for us as we come to the Lord's table this evening. The Bible says this, and we'll focus particularly tonight on verse number 9 in the launching into the preaching message tonight. But the Bible says this beginning in verse 1, Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endureth forever. He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. By the way, we're going to do that tonight. His death on Calvary is one of His chief wonderful works. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant or His promise. He hath showed His people the power of His works that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of His hands are verity, that's truth, or honesty and integrity and judgment. And all His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. Father, tonight as we come and study this concept of redemption, may You help us to know it. And Lord, as we come to know it, may we apply it in our daily life. Bless us, I pray, in this hour. And as we come into this time together around the table, may we be mindful of our own person our inner man, that which is in the recesses of our own thoughts and hearts. May we not just be pure before you, but may we also be pursuing you eagerly and earnestly because of the price that was paid for us. Bless us, I pray, in this hour, then, in this sermon, in this message. May it grab our hearts and motivate our actions to please you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says again in verse number 9, He sent redemption unto His people. As we understand this concept then, our minds go back to that old hymn, the beloved hymn, 
It goes like this, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Do we know what this means? Do we know what that redemption actually cost the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's a summary a compendium, if you will, a report, a list from the Word of God. And it's not complete in any fashion, but at least it forms an idea, an opinion for us as we understand redemption from a biblical perspective. God's purchase of us, to buy back, that's what redemption means in the Word of God. Isaiah 44 and verse 22 says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, he says. For I have redeemed thee. That's our God. That's the one who loves us. The great New Testament passage on this particular issue or this particular topic is found in Romans chapter 3. One of the joys I have in discipleship with some of the young men and some of the older men around here when I sit one-on-one with them is to take them through a study of the book of Romans. And I've done it with several men in this church. It's a joy. And when you look at Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5 deal with justification, the salvation we actually receive. And it's chapter 3 that fully defines what justification is, while chapter 4 shows us what it means to have right. Righteousness imputed, not imparted to us within the realm of justification. But in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, the Bible says this, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. How and who and why? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. In other words, He is the substitution. He is the plug and play that goes into your place where you should be condemned, where you should be punished. He was. That's what redemption means. Paul finishes by saying to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sin, remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, he's right to do it because he's the one that did it. He's the accomplisher. He's the provider. Paul would move along in his epistles, writing of redemption. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Isn't that a joy to know tonight? You and I are an absolute dumbfounding idea to the unbelieving world. The smarter they supposedly get and the dumber we look, the better we are servants of Jesus Christ. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. There's nothing redeemable about you, but He loves us, and He redeems us. He goes on in that very next verse and says, But of Him... 
are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God is made unto us, or Christ Jesus is made unto us, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, and the very last word is, and redemption. Hallelujah. To the Galatian church, Paul wrote this in verse, chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. To the Ephesians, he said this when he wrote that first chapter telling us about salvation from the divine perspective. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. He says this in verse number 7, In whom, in whom who? In whom Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 9 through 18, the worst sentence to diagram in all of the Bible. One sentence. You know if you've studied the Bible with me, either here in the church services through these 15 years or in personal time of Bible study, I like to study the Bible in complete sentences. It's the best way to know the mind of God. We won't study the whole sentence tonight because I want to just deal with redemption. But in the very middle of that sentence, in verse number 14, it says this, In whom, that is Christ, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Titus 2 and verse 14, the Bible says, Who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from what? all iniquity. Why? So that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Peter writes this in his epistle in 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, God didn't buy you back with money. You can't buy your way into heaven with money. For your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious Blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 is the last passage, and there's many more that speak to redemption or a ransom or the price that was paid. It says this, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that are under the First Testament. Why did he die? Why did he pay the price for you and I? Because he had to satisfy the law. It was under the First Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That is quite a list of verses. That is quite a compendium, we might say. More importantly, it's quite a description of what redemption is in its all, all its various facets. We note in that roster, first for our learning tonight, the condition for redemption. What is our condition as a race? And the answer is fallen, wretched, sinful, wicked, filled with iniquity, vile, Friends, you can't look around the world today and see or say that things are getting better. They're not. It doesn't matter where you live or where you're from. In every nation of the world, it seems that things are only progressing worse and worse. The Bible tells us it will. It shows us the true condition of the heart of mankind, the evil that is in it. But may I say tonight, we need to understand the redemption of Jesus Christ is not just from the evil, it is to redeem us from our state of enslavement. We are slaves to sin, the Bible tells us. 
We looked at the passage this morning. I'll not look at it again this evening, but in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 17 through verse 23, one that we know so well, 623. But that passage, he's talking about, Paul is explaining no longer justification in 3, 4, and 5. In 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about our sanctification. What does it mean to actually be saved? What do we get because of the redemption? And the core component that we receive from Christ is that we have a new master. We've been liberated from sin. And so it's funny that so many Christians just seem to casually go off into sin. And I used to be one of them. And you say, you don't sin anymore? I sin today, but I try not to sin as much as certainly I used to. As we understand it, the condition is that we are slaves to sin. The condition for redemption is that there must be a price on our head. There must be a bounty There must be a value that is placed. It is our soul. His life for mine was the price or the ransom that was required. Paul literally says in Romans that we are sold under sin. The devil gladly bought us. It didn't cost him anything. Mankind freely sold themselves into slavery when Adam chose to sin. Claiming Christ as our Savior... Knowing that He paid the price for us means that we accept His purchased redemption that He offers to us freely. The word redeem, as I noted, means to buy out. The term was used specifically in reference to the purchase of a slave's freedom in the Roman world. The application of this term to Christ's death on the cross is, in fact, quite telling. If we are redeemed, then our prior condition is one of slavery. That means you have no choices. You cannot help but sin. If you've been redeemed, you can help. You can choose not to. You have liberty. The condition for the redemption is secondly in the fact that we are separated from God. Two words in the Bible find themselves over and over again in the New Testament speaking of the nature of our separation from God. Those two words are condemnation and damnation. That second word is a tough one. Right? I realize we don't have the Sunday school classes going on. In fact, there's something I'm going to read in a minute that talks about the cost of redemption, and we might have to put some fingers in ears, or I might have to be a little careful how I read it. But moms and dads, you might have some conversations when you go home tonight. Because what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary cost him a lot. We note here we're separated from God. We are condemned. Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, says that we are condemned already. Over and over again, Jesus himself would often say these things. He would say, I've come not to judge the world. Now, we would naturally say, if we were God, and good thing we're not, if we were God, we would come down and we would say something like this. I'm here to judge you. (laughs) You know what you did to me? Do you know what you've done to me? Do you know what you will do to me? Thankfully, that's not our God. He's a patient and loving and gracious and merciful God who is long-suffering in every way. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. The world's already been judged. It's condemned already. The whole world stands condemned before him. That is our separation. Rather than a commendation from God, man has received a condemnation from God. The only reprieve from that condemnation comes when we accept Christ's sacrifice or redemptive offer for us. The second word is damnation. Those who do not receive Christ's payment, those who are not redeemed, 
suffer damnation forever. That's a strong word, but it's an accurate word. You will not be doomed forever. You will be damned forever, as the Bible teaches. Oh, the condition for redemption is clear. We are slaves who are separated from our God. The second note for us this evening that we consider from the whole of those passages we read is the cost of redemption. It is truly amazing to consider that God, the omnipotent creator, would show such condescension and mercy as to become our redeemer. Let that settle for just a moment. I am a big outer space nerd. If they offered pastors free rides to go to space, I'd take them up on it. Jessica would just make sure my life insurance is a lot higher, but I would make sure I took her, I'd take them up on that. I've always wanted to do that. Recently, we went down to Cape Canaveral, and we went around the, the, the Kennedy Space Center, and we went out there to watch, and they'd have that reenactment where you sit in the room, and everything rumbles, and it's like the rocket. It is just glorious. If you've never done it, you should do it. It is fantastic, as if you were there for one of the first Apollo rockets being launched. It is fabulous to watch. And I would have loved to have sat on the top of that rocket. Some of you are thinking, I would have loved for you to sit on the top of it as well. It's amazing to me when we look into the heavens and we recognize that the way in which God created the universe itself is still expanding. I was dumbfounded the other day that there are actually galaxies in the expansion of the universe that have now moved beyond our visible recognition. But at the time of Adam's creation, they would have been visible. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me the intricacies, the infinite, near-infinite nature of space. The God who spoke those things into being says, I will actually come down for you measly, sinful, wretched mortals, and I will die for you. I'll buy you back. You don't have to do anything. How lightly we treat our salvation. How casually we consider our redemption. That God... That creator condescended to a low estate. He took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Paul told the Philippians. Let me say this. Sin is never free. It may feel like it in the moment. It may seem like it at a time, but sin is never free. It has consequences. Here's the good news in this section on the cost of redemption. The reality is either you will pay for your sin or Jesus will pay for your sin. So this sounds like a salvation message. No, I'm just trying to remind us when we come to take of the cup and of the bread this evening, what we are partaking in, and that is the fact that he died. He redeemed us with his precious blood. There was the physical cost. That is his physical suffering. If you collect together the writings of the four Gospels, you will find that Jesus' physical suffering was beyond imagination. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14 tells us that Christ's visage was so marred that any man, it was, visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. If you've ever read The Case for Christ, anybody ever read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ? It's a wonderful book 
Don't know how 100% accurate it is, but he hired in the process of writing the book, The Case for Christ. Strobel himself was a Christian apologist, is a Christian apologist, and a legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist who, in researching whether Christ was in fact real, became a Christian and wrote The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, and I think The Case for the Resurrection were the three books that he wrote. He teamed up in his book with Dr. Alexander Metherell, and I want to read to you what this doctor has come to determine in the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. The article goes and says, The torture inflicted on Christ was so intense that at the time no word existed that could capture the essence of his suffering. Today, in fact, the word that attempts to describe what Christ endured on the cross is excruciating. Excruciating is derived from the Latin excruciare or crucify. So it would have been later or after the crucifixions that this word was evolved or the word came to capture what intense pain and suffering literally meant of out of the cross. Excruciate, crucify. Metherell explains that Jesus had likely been close to death before he reached the cross. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into, uh, into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. When Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was captured, he, sw- he sweated blood out of distress about the crucifixion. This is known, met a known medical condition called hematidrosis. Glad I'm not your doctor. It's not very common, the author adds, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological distress. What this did was to set up the skin to be extremely fragile or sensitive, so that when Christ was flogged by the Roman soldiers the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were were a lot more than that. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows to the same area. The whip had pieces of the sharp bone as well, which would then cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, through the buttocks to the back of the legs. It was Brutal and terrible, the doctor exclaims. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Dr. Methrell adds, We know that many people would die from just this kind of beating even before they made it to crucifixion. But Christ survived, only to face more suffering upon the cross. Methrell then provides further medical analysis as he describes the site of the cross, where there was a vertical beam already in the ground. The Romans then drove a tapered spike through the Christ's wrists, attaching him to a horizontal beam called the patabalum. This was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and would have, he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails were driven through the wrists. It's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs, Dr. Methrell explains, that this is the largest nerve going out of the hand and would be crushed by the pounding nail. Do you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow or hit your funny bone, he remarks? Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing 
and crushing that nerve. The pain was absolutely unbearable. Jesus' feet were nailed and those nerves were similarly crushed. The doctor goes on to explain that Christ's arms would have been stretched six inches wider than they should have been to dislocate his shoulders. Strobel notes in his book that Methero provides explicit details about how Christ died on agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation or suffocation. The doctor explains that the stress of the diaphragm put, on, put the chest into an inhaling position and that in order to exhale, Christ would have to push up using his painful feet in order to relieve pressure on the diaphragm and temporarily exhale. In doing so, the doctor notes, the nails would tear through his foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. Methril said this breathing motion would go on and on. Christ scraping his shredded back against the coarse wood until he became completely exhausted and unable to push up and breathe. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to irregular heartbeat, the doctor concludes. In fact, he notes, with his heart beating erratically... Jesus would have known that his moment of death was at hand. It's what enabled him to say, Lord, into my hands I commend my spirit. I can tell you that the physical suffering was real. Because sin's consequences are real. But beyond the physical suffering... The cost of redemption was also a spiritual cost, and that was separation. Friends, that is far greater than anything physical Christ would ever endure. You say, boy, that sounds pretty bad, Pastor. I'm kind of mortified as I sit here. I'm in a pall as we sit here and hear what you're saying. I don't even know how to react to what you just said. You can't. But I can tell you, biblically, what came next was worse. There is no argument, in fact, about which was worse for our Savior on the cross of Calvary. The physical pain, suffering, and ultimate death was torturous, but not comparable to the fact that His eternal, holy union separated, even if for the briefest of time, from the Father and the Spirit. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli! Lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The loneliest cry that has ever been made. God the Son, triune eternally, separated from the Father and the Son, because Paul notes he became sin for us, and sin is not in the presence of the Father. Imagine the billions and trillions of years that our brains struggle to fathom outside of human time and existence on the infinite timeline that is God. That there, in that moment, there was disunion so that He might die for you. A forced separation, a willing condemnation, What would that be like? As human beings, we cannot separate our souls from our spirits. We cannot divide our human being in such a way. At death, our soul and spirit separate from our mortal bodies, but none has been able ever to describe it because they are dead. 
Even that, however close, is an incomplete analogy. There is no way for us to reconcile it, but know this, that of all of sin's cost, this was the worst. This was the plan prepared before the foundations of the world, God tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, but it was the plan now coming to fruition. And all of the agony upon Christ had very little to do with the physical pain he would endure. It had to do with the spiritual cost of separation. This was the divine tragedy of sin. It is also the height of divine love, divine mercy, and divine grace that Christ would endure such lengths because he loves us so. The condition for redemption established the cost of redemption But finally, there is the challenge for the redeemed. What do we make of all of this? This is why we celebrate, and I use that word carefully. It is to us a joy and equal parts a terror what Christ did for us. The agony of that separation is what those who do not know Christ will endure for eternity. And so there is joy in what we do tonight while there is a somber spirit that settles upon us. We commune together not over our success and our failures, our fellowship one with another, but rather in this moment specifically over His sacrifice in redeeming us. The challenge for those who have been redeemed is twofold. First, to walk worthy. Paul wrote to the Ephesians this in Ephesians 4 and verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. You've been called to live like one of the redeemed. So do it. Paul is exhorting believers to live their lives so as to prove they belong to Christ. They are to maintain a fidelity to Christ and live with biblical integrity. Pastor is not going to be there, especially the bigger we keep getting, to run around and say, don't do that. Oh, hey, hey, don't do that. No, 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 no. You are redeemed. And if you understand this redemption, then the challenge is for you. Colossians chapter 1, and again, in part of that very long sentence, in verses 10, 11, and 12, That's a very good sentence, it sounds like. You should probably go study it twice in one message. I've brought it out. He says this in verse 10, 11, and 12, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Who's pleasing are we to walk worthy of? God's pleasing, not ours. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us Meet to be partakers or made us appropriate, fit, right to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Walking worthy, Paul says here, is tied to four personal characteristics. Being fruitful in every good work, being steady steady in our increasing of our knowledge of God, using the power of God to joyfully endure and patiently preserve those difficulties in our life. And number four, giving thanks for what the Father brings along our way. We're to walk worthy, but finally we're to live holy. 
Holiness is the standard for the believer that has been redeemed. That's our challenge. It is the goal. It is the aspiration of the follower of Christ. It is not that we will be perfect, but we must be pursuing holiness in every possible way in our life. That is one that does that, who values redemption. Take your Bibles as we close and turn over to Revelation 5. In Revelation chapter 5, we find the refrain of the redeemed. I don't know if you have favorite chapters of the Bible, but this should be one of them. Chapter 4 is grand and glorious. It, 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 it shows us the rapture. It shows us the first scenes of heaven. It shows us how those saints of the Old Testament, those saints of the New Testament, will be united together in worship of God in heaven. But in chapter 5, we find there is a particular refrain that begins. And it's the song of the redeemed. And it's the message to those who are redeemed. The Bible says in chapter 5 in verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven. We could keep reading and say, No man in earth. No man under the earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Man, that is an important book. It's the book of life, yeah. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. How did he prevail? When did he prevail? In his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. That's the prevailing of Jesus Christ. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders, that's the Old Testament and New Testament saints, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying... Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. You math nerds, that's 100 million, and thousands of thousands beyond the 100 million, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as, such as are in the See, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. As we contemplate and consume the elements this evening, in our partaking together, may each of us truly 
consider our redemption. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We can sing that with joy. And we ought to live it with truth. Father, help us as we now bow. As we come to a time where we, of this family, partake together. Father, I pray that you'll help us to not be perfect before you, but to be pure in pursuing you with earnest hearts. May we take worthily of these elements. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, This evening, as we take of the elements and we participate together in such a fashion, it is an ordinance given to the local church, but as a church, we recognize there might be folks from out of town who are traveling through. The only stipulation we have is this, that you are in good standing in your church. If you're here locally, you ought to be a member of this church to participate. Beyond that, the only reason tonight you should not participate is because there's unconfessed sin between you and God. That's it. When the men come and when we partake, it is a good time to sit quietly in contemplation and prayer. It's a good time of introspection and reflection, for the Bible tells us we do this in remembrance of Him until He comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus. May we as a people always seek to be pure and holy before Him.